hello, hello. I welcome you once again to Pastor B's Kitchen Table. As you know that on Fridays we get together, we break it down, chop it up, put it back together again. So go ahead and contact your mom, your dad, and all your nieces and nephews. Let them know that the table is time to run back to the table. And I'm so glad today that we have a guest, a very, very special guest at the kitchen table. Dr. Mentor, will you say hello and tell us who you are and what you do? Hello, and thank you for having me, Pastor Hamilton. I'm Jackie Mentor. I am a physician, and I am currently serving as the Director of Health and Human Services for Fort Bend County. I also serve as the local health authority here in Fort Bend. I am wife and a mother of three grown children and uh, just love living life. Hey, man, I'm so glad you said, I'm glad that you're here to really, it, it is a great blessing to have you here with us today. On Wednesday night, uh, I hosted a town hall in a town hall gathering. It was about a back to school town hall. And we had educators, we had uh, school superintendents, teachers and parents, and we were all gearing up talking about this whole returning to school. And so now that I have you, I've talked to all the educators and all the teachers and all those that's going to be there. I want to ask you, what is your counsel? What are you telling those that are parents and those who are administrators about navigating these un, 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 unpredictable waters of transitioning back to school? Sure, sure. It's a great question. Um, you know, back to school in my household when I had children in K through 12 was always a very exciting time. We loved education. I'm a daughter of two educators, and my husband is the son of an educator. So um, going back to school was always exciting. And um, I, I hope that people, families, children, and their parents are excited about learning again. Close of school last year was um, very uncertain. We didn't know what was going on. It was abrupt. Some people were on spring break, and we had this virus around that we didn't know exactly what the future was going to hold. We still are in that situation. We know more now than we knew before. Certainly there's some um, anxiety that goes along with it. There's that excitement. But my counsel is that we do know now how we can go back safely. We want to go back to school safely face to face, but we may not be able to do that just yet while there's a substantial amount of disease in the community, but that day will come. We don't have to worry that we will never go back to school. We don't have to worry that schools are not prepared. We don't have to be concerned that somehow once the child leaves, they'll never come back. Yes, there's illness in our community, but the schools have by and large done a fantastic job of preparing their students and their teachers and their facilities for getting those children to get back to school when they're not able to be in school. I understand that they have worked very hard with remote learning and to really try to make sure that everyone has the capability of learning outside of a physical classroom as well. We want people to be safe. We want families to be safe. Even if we're not as concerned about the children in the schools, those adults in the school may have some risk and we don't want them to be unsafe. Yeah, yeah. We also don't want others who are vulnerable in the community to be unsafe. Whenever you're at school, it is a mass gathering. That's just what it is. Yeah, and exactly. we want it to be very, very safe. And when it can't be, the schools already have put things in place to make sure that they can continue excellent learning outside of the physical classroom. Okay, thank you so much, doctor. Now, we've all kind of become familiar with this new term 
called contact tracing. Can you tell us what that is and how does it work? Sure, sure. So for people in public health, we have been doing contact tracing for years. It is the way that we locate people with an infectious disease who may spread to someone else. And we find out who those contacts are and we isolate them as well have to, or have them go get testing and have them quarantine. And that is the way that we can slow the spread of the disease. Viruses in and of themselves, they don't know anything but to find other people. It's how they live. So they want to go from person to person to person. When they can't get in contact from one person to the next, then they die out. And that's what we want to help them do through contact tracing. So if you are identified as a person who is a case, Mm -hmm. And you are called, or you don't have to even wait to get called if you don't want to. But if you are called, you can um, give information about where you have been and who you might have been in contact with. Then while yeah. you're in quarantine, you look for your symptoms. If symptoms arise, you'll get a test and we'll already know who to contact and who to tell. Stay at home, stay away from others for that 14 days, watch for symptoms. That mm -hmm. helps reduce the spread of disease. It works. It's been working for years and years and years. Now, it's harder when there's a lot of disease in the community because it's hard to get to all those contacts. But how you can help is to identify people when you're positive, that you've been close around, tell them if you feel like you want to share that with them so that they can keep themselves safe and healthy, look for symptoms. Right. And that's how we can decrease the spread of disease in our community. So, Doctor, if you're talking about contact and tracing the contact, which brings into to a great firestorm that started this week, and that is the issue related to sports, mm -hmm. about what's going to happen with the sports. Of course, we know that on the, in, in the university level, there are some schools that have shut down sports for the fall. In the high school, there, there, there are many that are still continuing on as planned starting in September. So how does contact tracing work in the context of sports? So it's the same. Okay, it's the same. So we identify a close contact as right. anyone who has been within six feet of a positive case for more than 15 minutes. Okay, so if you have been playing a contact sport for more than 15 minutes and you have been close, then you're likely going to be named as a contact and have to quarantine. So what does that mean for a sports yeah. season? Yeah. It mean that you're all you're all practicing together, you're breathing hard, and because of that exercise, you're expelling a lot more respiratory droplets and ways to spread disease. And you might be named as a contact. We saw that in some of the summer uh, camp programs, some of the summer youth sports programs where we would have one and then another and then another case. So we could anticipate that that could happen if there are positive cases within a sports team. Okay. So you're saying that, that potentially the sports team could have a game schedule for the following week and not be able to participate because of quarantine. Yeah, absolutely. That could happen. Yes. Okay. Okay. I, I think that's they one have reason. to be prepared for that possibility. <laughs> exactly. And I think they, okay, well that, that is so true. Cause that is, I think only the NBA has been successful in creating this bubble effect. Right, right. If, if we could all, that's kind of everybody getting into that quarantine, multiple yeah, testing, yeah. making sure we control everybody in and out, then, then we're pretty safe. But how can we do that in yeah, an environment yeah. with high schoolers or middle schoolers or Pee Wee League? That would be difficult. Everybody goes home to a different family. Exactly. You can't do that. You, you can't create the bubble experience perpetually. So 
the impact of COVID on children. What's your final analysis? We've heard so many varied opinions on that. What's the reality? Does it impact children? So absolutely it impacts children, but it definitely impacts children differently. And what I will say, Pastor Hamilton, is that this is a new virus. We learn a little bit more about it each week, each month, things we thought we knew, we learn may or may not have been as true as we thought they were. Also, the information that we have is based on on limits. So the information that we have about children and how they are affected was before school had its big effect, right? Because we took everybody out of school. So what we think we understand is different from most viruses. Most viruses, young children are super spreaders. They just spread all over the place. Early indications are that children may not spread COVID as much as some of the other viruses. But I say early because the real test is when we get all of our children in school. And that's when we'll really have enough information to know. So at that, um, there's also, um, we definitely know that, that the data we have show that children generally don't have the same side effects or the same severe effects. And that's children under 10. We notice that as they get older to be, you know, teenagers and late teens, um, Mm -hmm. early uh, adulthood, those young people will experience more of the symptoms and may spread it a lot more. But again, the severity of the disease definitely increases with increasing age. Of course, at any age, if children have diseases or they have conditions that cause their immune systems not to be able to fight or they get sick quicker, they will, they could suffer as well. Wow. So why is the virus has such a disproportionate effect on people of African descent? So there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, A lot of the the reasons are not because of their ethnicity. Okay. So it's not because they're of African descent. Okay. What it appears is that it's more because of socioeconomic factors and health inequities, as opposed to something that is in the genes of an African-American person, okay? Explain that please, Dr. Sure, sure. So by disparities, I mean things that are different for African, Mm. some African-American populations than they might be for other populations. So non-Hispanic white populations or Asian populations or even Hispanic populations, okay? So what we may see more of and what we believe we're seeing more of is anyone who doesn't have um, access to to good health insurance and health uh, care, those people, regardless of ethnicity and race, will have a a different effect and probably a more serious effect from COVID-19. Why why is that? Well, that's because they may not have seen a doctor in time um, in many years, and they may have diabetes or hypertension that has gone untreated. So they could be a 55-year-old gentleman who is of Caucasian descent, but has a job with insurance that um, has been able to to go see the doctor and be on medicines for three or four years and Mm -hmm. has his hypertension and his diabetes completely under control. So if he gets COVID, it's not going to have the same effects on maybe an African-American gentleman who's 55 years old, has diabetes, has hypertension, but maybe has the same salary, but works contract and has no insurance. And so has put off 
seeing the doctor and has a disease that's more out of control, immune system's not as strong, and then may suffer more of the consequences from COVID-19. Wow. So it is tied to pre-existing conditions, but, but not Absolutely. only medically. You're talking about also sociologically, economically, and all those. Right. In addition, in addition, there are those who are um, more represented in some of the service industries and essential uh-huh. worker fields. So they're going to be more on the front lines and exposed right. more to the virus than someone who has a job where they can Zoom all day, every day, yeah. never yeah. have yeah. to yeah. go into the yeah. office. That's very different than someone who may be doing service at a hospital or service driving a bus or just frontline. They're going to be exposed more. And so their risk for getting the the virus would be higher. Wow. Thank you for the clarity on that, because I know three people personally who've died uh, as a result of this. Unfortunately, they've died. And uh, just always wonder. It's amazing how you have some individuals who who will get it. And in a matter of 14 days, they're kind of going back strong. Someone else has the same virus, and in a matter of days, they're on a ventilator, and, and then two days later, they have a funeral. Uh, so it, it's, it's just, but I like what you said about there, there are some underlying factors that are often there that contribute That's to true. it. That's true. That's true. And when you see our, um, the numbers up, you also have to think about the setting that people live in. So we know that through discrimination, there are we're more represented, African-Americans are more represented in the prison systems. Well, the prison systems are congregate settings where once a case is there, there's not room to go anywhere. So they spread in in large and mass gatherings. And we've seen that. We see that in nursing homes. It's not just because it's a prison, but any place where someone's confined and the disease can spread quickly. So if you've got a population that is more represented in that system, then those numbers are going to be higher going to be higher. Wow. Dr. Mentor, what about this whole swirling idea about a vaccine? So a vaccine is where we want to be. Um, for okay. any, uh, any disease that is going to, any infectious disease that is going to cause a disease among a large group of people and then affect certain people in a very bad way, so ending in death, that we can prevent, we want to prevent. Those are called vaccine preventable diseases. And that's where we're going with COVID-19. It will take some time to develop that vaccine. Trials are underway. Uh, One of the things that we need to be aware of is that in in a lot of communities, there's a distrust of the healthcare system. And so we're not sure if this is something that's going to help me, like people say it is, or is it something that might harm me? One of the communities that's hardest to get to get a flu vaccine is the African-American community. Mm -hmm. And we know that the flu vaccine is beneficial. Is it 100%? No. But for those who take their flu vaccine year in and year out, the chances of getting flu are less. The chances of getting severe disease from the flu, if you get it, are much less. And those who will get severe disease from the flu are those who have hypertension, who have diabetes, who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or asthma. It's so important for those people to get their flu vaccine. And we have a hard time with the African-American population. But we know that historically there have been issues with trust, but we're trying to make inroads to make sure that we're giving people good information, reminding them, hey, I get my flu shot every year. 
it's okay and I'm protected and I'm protecting those around me. So getting that will be a big push on flu shots this year. Why? Because flu and COVID look a lot alike. Flu mm -hmm. and COVID will both put you in the hospital. Flu and COVID then take all those hospital beds. So if we can get flu out, we'll still have more room to take care of our COVID patients in the fall and in the winter. And then yeah. when that vaccine is delivered, then we do need to make sure that once a safe and effective vaccine has been developed, that we go ahead and, and take care of ourselves by getting that vaccine. Well, I think as doctor, as you stated that in our community, many times it's not that we're being difficult or trying to be uh, anti-vaccine, we're pro-vaccine. As a matter of fact, history has proven that we were willing to be even somewhat, if you want to call them guinea pigs, mm -hmm. just to create a vaccine, but, but because of our history of what has transpired, of course. And then also this whole thing has become so politicized yes. until you begin to wonder, okay, what is actual and what is just preparing us for the November March? Right. And so all those are contributing factors, which is the question I want to ask you is that, is it, and I know that they're, they're trying to construct the vaccine. I know we heard about Russia has one, all that. Um, the question is, in, in trying to create a vaccine, do you intentionally have to infect someone in order to see if it works? So actually, this is a positive of an unfortunate situation that the U.S. is in right now. There is so much community spread that just in living your life day to day, especially here in Texas, where some of the vaccines are being developed and will be tested, just by going back and forth, people will be exposed to COVID. So you do not have to intentionally expose someone to vaccine as you're testing. There are a challenge trials, which means there are people who, because of their, their altruistic nature or because of wow. something that happened to a family member or a friend, they want to challenge themselves. Those are called challenge trials, where they will get a vaccine and then be intentionally exposed to, vac uh, to COVID-19. But that is not, that is not the, the preferred way, and that is not the only way, and that is not the major way that any vaccines are developed. If someone is going to, to go through vaccine trials, you really do want it to happen in a place where there's enough disease. But that's coming and going, doing their normal activities. That's how they will find out if this vaccine really works. In your expert opinion, how far away do you think we are from a vaccine? You know, I have been on several calls. I know we're closer than we thought we would be. Normal vaccine development, or I would say in the past, vaccine development could take up to three years. 18 wow. months would be considered fast. Wow. But We've learned a lot, and as you know, all of your viewers know, we, we do things differently now than we did them before COVID. Look at what we're doing now. We don't sit in a booth and talk yeah, to each yeah, other. Yeah. We go to many, many, many meetings, and we right. never leave our house. So yeah. those same um, adjustments have been made with uh, vaccine development. They have found that they can do two steps at the same time without compromising anything. It's just like we've learned some things. So without compromising safety, they've been able to make strides. They've also been able to take what was developed for maybe another disease and figure out, oh, this is already the beginning point of where we would want to be for our COVID vaccine. So the hope is somewhere by next spring, we would have a, a safe and effective vaccine. If we have 
of that before, that would be wonderful. That would be absolutely wonderful. But my understanding is the trials that are done, especially here in the Houston area, there is mm -hmm. nobody trying to rush. We want them faster, but would not rush for safety and for effectiveness. Why give it if it's not safe? Why give it if it's safe, but not effective? Will the taking, once the vaccine is developed, will it be mandatory to take it? There is no mandatory requirement for a vaccine that I have ever heard of. In the healthcare system, we wish everybody would take a flu vaccine. It protects all the patients, it protects you, it keeps you at work. Will we want people to take it? Yes, because the more of us that take it, we'll get to that that magic two words of herd immunity, right? Yeah, Where there's right. enough immunity in the community without causing death that right. we can protect everyone. So right. we will be really encouraging that, but right. mandatory, right. I don't know that we would do a mandatory vaccine in this country. Okay, okay. I, I only asked that because I was reading an article and they talked about that once it is developed, whatever time frame it takes, that in order to maintain your job with the government, or perhaps to participate in the public sector, that they would there there were those who would want to advocate that let's make it mandatory, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and 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 that that really sends kind of chills down you know down down the public spine. Is that is that right, something that could right. really take so, place? So I I think I understand what you're saying. I haven't heard that, but I think I understand right. what you're saying, and it's part of protection, right? right so you right. think if you are going to easily spread a disease without knowing that mm -hmm. you have it and you're a public servant, right. well, do you want to protect the public by having the vaccine? I've always been for that in healthcare. Why make somebody that's coming in to my office sick? Because I've got the flu and I'm giving it to them. But right. with flu, I know my symptoms, right? And right, I kind of right. can stay home. With COVID, you may not know. And so I, I can understand why people are, are having that discussion, yes. Yeah, yeah. So for the parents and the guardians who are watching us right now, and one thing that you, you, you alluded to earlier is the issue of trust. What would you tell them about trusting the process? Trusting the process of de vaccine development? Yes, yes. Okay, so I do believe in the, the phone calls, the meetings, the conferences that I've been on, there are good safeguards in the vaccine in development industry. Will those safeguards be followed all the way through? I believe they will, and I believe we should trust them. If they are not, there will be signs, and there are people there watching and safeguarding to make sure that that does not happen and that we pull back. We are fortunate to have some of the best um, vaccine proponents who are not political, who are, um, kind of beaten up on both sides. So you know they're probably right down in the middle because everybody's beating them up. They just want good and, and, and solid healthcare delivered good medicines. And as I say that, I also um, do want to say that there are uh, studies and trials for treatments. And that's important as well, because just like we have Tamiflu for the early stages of flu, if we can get to the point where we also have some good treatments for for COVID, that will be beneficial as well. Widely available, good treatments for early stage COVID disease, that will help as well. Amen, amen. Dr. Mender, it was reported seven days ago that in Fort Bend County, they saw a decrease 
and 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 COVID infections. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you attribute that to? So I do think that the fact that we are wearing our face coverings mm-hmm. more. I don't know if you remember, um, maybe back in late June, some people were wearing them. A yeah, people, I remember. That's right. A lot of people weren't. But now you're out and people are wearing those face coverings. Yeah. We have discovered, and this is you know one of those things with the new, ba- new virus, you find out, you learn along the way. So many people are wearing those face coverings and we watch the disease go down. We haven't gone back to a lockdown or staying inside. We have decreased numbers of gatherings. That's very important as well, because the more gatherings there are, you know, the, the, the more that the disease is going to spread, even with some of the face coverings, because sometimes, you know, it's just not going to fit right or things are going to come out. There's just going to be more chances. But I attribute that to that face coverings and people really being cognizant. We're also, you know, you wash your hands, you've got the face covering. So even if you pick up some virus on your hands, it may not get to your face if your face is protected. But you're protecting others by, you know, not breathing things out on them and they're protecting you by not breathing things out on you. So I I think that that has a big effect. So so Dr. Mendel, you're saying that wearing a face mask really works. Yes, it's been proven to work, and I think we see it here in our community as well. Hey, man, that is awesome. Dr. Mentor, you you just a, a, just a wealth of, of knowledge and information. I've seen you on so many different platforms, and you've always been exact and thoroughly prepared and very clear. Uh, I won't hold you to this, but I just want to just kind of actually look through the crystal ball, if you could, for a little bit. Uh, next three, six, nine months from now, where will we be? That depends on us. I think one of the biggest things that we see, at least for taking care of COVID, is it's simple. It really is simple. Is it easy? No, but it's simple. We have seen that if we maintain distance, if we wear our face coverings, if we wash our hands, if we stay away when we're ill, we can protect our vulnerable people extremely well, extremely well. And our disease, honestly, can go way down in a matter of of weeks, a matter of weeks. It doesn't take long. We have to not get tired of those practices that we know work. It's it's not magic. Um, I'm very optimistic about that ability to do that. We have the ability. We absolutely can do it. Will we? It depends on us. We have to believe that it depends on us. We have to believe we have the tools to do it. Whether we have all of the right data, all of the right medicines, the virus just needs us to spread. And we can stop that with our face coverings, with our distancing, with our hand washing. So Dr. Mentor, are you saying that face covering, um, washing the hands, social distancing is our new normal? It is for a while. Absolutely. It is definitely for a while. While disease is present in the community until we have a vaccine, that, that is our new normal. Will we always live like this? Mm. No. But we can determine how long we'll have to you know, live right. like this. But once we have that vaccine, and we will have it, once we have that vaccine and enough uptake, once we have enough disease and herd immunity in the community, that will help. Mm-hmm. Um, have we determined whether this will be cyclical and seasonal, like a, a more mild flu? COVID-19 co- is caused by a virus? 
that, you know, it's new now, but years from now, it will circulate like other flu and cold viruses and we'll see it and it will come, but the level of severity of illness will probably decrease. If it's like other viruses, will decrease from years to come. And it'll just be another one of those things that causes mostly mild illness and sometimes more severe illness in those who are susceptible. Well, that's rather encouraging to hear because there are a lot of people who have COVID fatigue. They're tired of wearing the mask, they're tired of washing, and, and they're tired of separating at six feet distance, and they're just they're tired of that. And so I think what you see a lot of times is just open rebellion yes. because people, people are clamoring for the life in which they once knew, the freedom in which they once had. And right. so and that's why you say it all depends on us. It does. It does. And we will get there. I mean, we did it before. We can do it again. We, it's hard. It's hard. Like I said, it's, well, simple, but it's not easy. Simple steps, but it's not easy to stay committed. Think about those in your community. Every time we have a spike, we have preventable deaths. I read the charts of everybody that dies in Fort Bend County before we post them. So read the records. That's a person. That's a neighbor. That's a friend that's a relative, that's somebody who existed on this earth and brought pleasure to other people. Yeah. And we lose them by, because we're tired, you know, because we don't, we don't want to continue. So it really is up to us. If we just continue, if we just hold on a little bit longer doing those things, yeah. even when our level is, you know, orange and yellow and green, whatever the level is, while right. the disease is still circulating in the community, we have to stay vigilant. We stay vigilant continue to do those things, we'll get there. We will get wow. there. Wow, wow. You know, Dr. Meredith, <laughs> I watch you and you're in so many circles and you're dealing with people who make a lot of decisions um, and you're kind of dealing with people on both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. And so how do you keep yourself encouraged? Because you're talking to people who really desire it to be one way, but based on the numbers and based on what the stats say and, 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 and the medical climate says, this is the reality of it. So how do you stay encouraged in the midst of what you're having to see and report and have been trained to give, to give leadership on? Right. So um, one of the things is making sure I surround myself by people who also know the truth about science and medicine and even somewhat human behavior. We encourage each other. You, know, yeah. you make sure that you encourage each other. And then all, I would say probably most of that group, we're all people of faith. So that helps us to, to remind each other that we will get through this. This too shall pass. We heard it early, but we yeah. didn't know what shall pass meant, right? It, right. We were thinking a week, <laughs> two. Yeah, that's right. But that's you know, right. it's, it's not, we're not in control. We've never been even though we think we are, but it's okay. We still know that we will get through this. We know more today. And that, to me, that's very encouraging. We know much more today than we knew six months ago. We were very unsettled. Fort Bend County had the first case in Texas. That was an unsettling feeling. But we went through and by the next month, we saw case, cases go up and come back down. So that's encouraging that the simple, simple, Public health practices do work. So that always encourages me. It encourages me that people want to do the right thing. All of us want COVID gone for economic reasons, for health reasons, for back to school, for business, all of those. We all really do want the same thing. And that encourages me. We, we, sometimes we don't act like we're on the same team, but we yeah. are. We yeah. all, and, and I do also realize that fear and lack of knowledge 
do cause people to speak yeah. in ways and act in ways that can seem very unkind and threatening. But when you understand where it comes from, then you can calm yourself down and say, we'll get through this. We will get yeah. through this. Hey, man, what a word. What a word, Dr. Men. And, and I think that's a great closing statement is that we will get through this. Um, we, we're going to be all right. And I thank you so much for your words and your counsel. Um, with just, just, just the simplicity of that, that we do have a say-so in this process. We're not just hapless, helpless victims here. That if we will follow the necessary protocols, take the necessary actions, accept where we are, and be focused on where we're headed, we will get to the other side of this. And I really love what you said, Dr. Minter, about fear, because I was thinking about the Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. And I think one thing that oftentimes promotes our fear is we don't have knowledge. And so now having the knowledge should really help accentuate uh, our faith and not so much our fear. So I do thank you. So, so all of our guests, you've heard Dr. Mentor, and I pray that you've been encouraged in your heart that you can now tell cousins and nephews and tell big mom and everybody else, hey, we're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. Let's do what's been prescribed, and we will get to the other side. Dr. Mentor, may God bless you. May God keep you. And may you keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you for joining us here today at the kitchen table. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye.